you so much, Dave, and uh, leading us in this time. It's a great time of just being able to just remember upon, uh, reflect upon all that God has done for us, and uh, it's an exciting time, and I appreciate what God's doing in Dave's life and how he's growing, and thank you, uh, Pastor Matt, as well, for leading us in this time. Welcome to Nolwood. If you're with us online, I just encourage you to let us know that you're here in the comments, and uh, if this is your first time, even just to let us know by clicking that connect uh, connection card and, and letting us know that you're here with us. I'm really excited about how we are starting community groups uh, tomorrow. They're starting tomorrow. And if you have any questions about that, you can reach out to us at the office or uh, you can check out our website as well for any more information upon that. But as we get into uh, continuing to worship our awesome God, that is what we're doing. When we're opening up the Word of God, it's not just a time for you to sit and hear some really great sermon from a really great guy. But this is a time to just come and to reflect upon who God is and continue to worship him through his word. I was being sarcastic about the whole great sermon and great guy, although I hope I am all of those things. But uh, we're here to magnify and to glorify our awesome God. And even with that, if you have your Bibles, we're going to be looking at John chapter 3, and we're going to continue on in uh, verse 22 to all the way to the end at 36. And this is going to be a great reminder of, of pride and uh, even, even comments like what I just made and a great reminder of what God has done for us through his son, Jesus Christ. Um, so if you have your Bibles with you, please open them to John chapter 3, verses 22, all the way to the end of the chapter, verse 36. The word of the Lord says this. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Jordan countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Anon and near Salem, because water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification, and they came to John and said to him, Rabbi... He who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing, and all are going to him. John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourself bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. 31. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For we whom God has sent utters the for he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, 
but the wrath of God remains on him. And this is the word of the Lord. Let me pray. Father God, we're coming to continue to worship you. We're coming to open up your word together to see how uh, you have revealed yourself specifically to us through your word. Lord, I pray that we would be a people that cherish it, that love it, that seek to, to know you more and to grow in the grace and the knowledge of you as we spend time both individually and corporately in your word. Lord, we pray for other churches who are gathering in very much the same way we are, Lord. We long to see each other face to face, and we look forward to that day, Lord. I pray that we would indeed long for that. But Lord, we also pray for those who are in the same boat we are. Lord, I pray that each church, that each church here in London who preaches the good news of Jesus Christ, that, that cherishes your word, that they would be a light in this darkness that you would use them to magnify your name. And Lord, we specifically think of uh, Stony Creek Baptist Church and Pastor Mark, and that you would use them as they seek to be disciples who make disciples of Jesus Christ. We pray as they gather that they would be spurred on to be light in this city. And Lord, as we open up your word together, I pray that you would use it for your glory and for your honor. God, there is no way that I can do this on my own. So God, will you make this not turn out well for your glory? By your spirit, help me to preach the sermon with what is needed, Lord. Use this sermon, God, to bring first glory to your name. I pray, Lord, that it brings joy to your people, that it also convicts your people, but that it also brings salvation to the lost. And amen. You know what keeps amazing me as I reflect upon myself? My pride. It's amazing. It truly is amazing to reflect upon who you are and to think about your pride. Now, let's be careful. Let's not confuse pride and confidence. Those are two completely different things, and that's probably a sermon on its own. But pride. And before you go off, oh, yeah, that's true. Uh, the pastor, he, he struggles with that stuff. Let me ask you this. How do you feel when somebody else gets the praise? How do you feel when somebody else gets the credit? Maybe it's in school, and you worked hard on a project. You worked night and day and, and for weeks on end, and, and you put everything you had into that, into that, into that project, and, and your classmate, he's like super smart, and they worked on it last night. And they get the praise and the accolades from the teacher for the hard work that they supposedly put into it. Or think about work, and you're working on a school, or not a school, on a work project, and maybe you're doing it with a partner of yours, and, and all of a sudden, he, he, uh, that your boss uh, comes and, and gives that other individual the praise that you felt that you deserved. What is that feeling that begins to well up? Or how about parents? When somebody else's kid is doing well and better than your own kid, what is that feeling that begins to rise up within you? You know, I struggle with it. I'm going to admit, pride is there. It is in everybody's hearts. And before somebody comes and says, I don't struggle with pride, I would say to you that pride is the root of all sin. Look at Adam and Eve. In the garden, they come and they say to God, I, essentially they're saying, I can do it better. 
I know better. And from that seed of pride, the sin of, of, of the cancer of sin, the poison of sin just permeates not only their lives, but every ancestor after that. You know, we all struggle with sin. Essentially, that's envy. That's envy. I remember years back, there was a movie with Jack Black called Envy and talked about how uh, Jack Black made this invention of, um, we don't need to talk about it, but he made an invention and uh, he began to get money, and he built this massive, huge house. And the guy who Jack Black actually approached about becoming a partner, he begins to get envious of him. You know, envy is an awful thing. It's, it's coveting is the sin. Humility is hard. The Bible actually talks about how important it is to fight for humility. It is important. Why should we care about it, though? Doesn't it sometimes, you know, wouldn't that maybe drive you to be ambitious, maybe? And isn't ambition good? Well, then, what do we do with passages like in 1 Peter 5, verse 5, which says like this, Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Or we can see Jesus' words in Luke 14. In Luke 14, 11, it says, For everyone who exalts himself will be what? Humbled. And he who humbles himself will be exalted. If God cares about it, should you not as well? It's not just some sort of white lie sort of situation in your life, even though those things should be ones that are viewed through the holiness of God. Envy uh, is something that we should be fighting against. Even though in our world that is around us, they almost celebrate it. Now think about it. Think about how people are introduced when they're in spe- on speaking gigs. Dr. So-and-so with PhDs, two PhDs. I've mentioned this before, but uh, Steph and I are watching a show called Bones. And even last night as we were watching it, uh, they were competing with one another with how many PhD degrees they have. What is the root of that? Lack of humility, for sure. It's envy. It's pride. So how do I fight those feelings? If God cares so much about humility, in fact, he says that he's utterly against those who are prideful, how do I fight that? How can I fight this thing that actually really feels like a drug? Because when envy gets rooted within us, when it gets that foothold, it's almost like something we dwell upon that we just kind of feed off of it like a parasite. We just love it. So how do we fight it, even though the world around us tells us that it's okay? In verses 22 to 26, we see the scene of the arguments that's beginning to be uh, placed before us. Uh, In verse 22, we see that Jesus... And, and, and uh, John the Baptist are kind of in the same area, and they are beginning to baptize people. And friends of John the Baptist were beginning to get a little bit concerned about what's happening, because what's happening is Jesus is beginning to grow in importance. More disciples are beginning to go to Jesus than to John the Baptist. But John the Baptist, he started first. 
He was there first. He was baptizing people first. And the argument begins to happen with this first individual, who, this first Jewish man who thinks that a conversation about purification. There's almost a misunderstanding of what it means to be purified and that somehow water can make you pure. But as we will see later on, it's only Jesus that can purify, that can make us clean. As Dave was talking about, he is the atonement. We call it the penal substitutionary atonement. A beautiful doctrine. And the foundation to the gospel. But here's the problem. Romans 12, verse 3 comes along and says, For by grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. But to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. So the issue is this. We almost have two titans meeting. And one's becoming more popular than the other. And John the, Baptist's, John the Baptist's disciples begin to see how Jesus is growing in popularity. And they begin to be a little concerned. And then there's a third group that's coming out in this text. And that third group is actually just John the Baptist. But in verse 25, we see baptizing. And John the Baptist, uh, John's baptism and even Jesus's was a symbol of forgiveness of sin that the Messiah is coming. Jesus would give to those who repent and turn from their sin and rest in, their, in his finished work. See, baptism is just a sign. It's just a sign of, of what God has already done in our lives. Some of you may be asking, well, why do we get baptized? We get baptized because Jesus told us to. And if you even care a little bit, in verse 36, it even says there, right, those who obey. Jesus comes and he tells us to be baptized. And baptism is a public proclamation of what God has already accomplished within us. He has cleansed us by the power and the blood of Jesus Christ. We have been adopted. We've been sanctified. Baptism was instituted by Jesus and is to be administered in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, just like Jesus commanded. But here we see this very interesting conversation begin to come up just based upon, around this. The whole argument is actually not about baptism. You, you catch that? but in who Jesus is. Because pride comes from thinking of ourselves more highly than we thought. John the Baptist's disciples were thinking more highly than they thought. They thought that they were following the man, the more popular guy. Pride comes from thinking of ourselves more highly than we ought. The argument that is happening in these next few, uses, these next few verses is not about baptism, but about Christ and who he is. So how do we think of ourselves in the right way, you can ask. In verses 27 to 33, we see the testimony of John the Baptist exactly about who Jesus is. So we have this argument in the first bit that John the Baptist's disciples go to John and they say, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness about, look, he, he's baptizing and all are going to him. You can almost hear the whininess in the voice. 
But verse 27 is a beautiful account of who Jesus is. John answers in verse 27, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. Not one thing. John gives a testimony of who Jesus is. And he starts off by saying that God is the author of everything he has. Everything. In 1 Corinthians 4, 7, it says this, For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it, he says. See, this is why John is content with with Jesus getting the greater honor. Everything John has is simply a gift that has been given from heaven above. And in verse 27a, we see right off the bat man's inability. A person cannot receive even one thing. God is the giver of everything we have. So John is content to see Jesus receiving the greatest honor that the Father has given to him. Look, the faith that you have to believe, the faith that you says that you are a child of God, that you believe that he is true, is a gift from the Father. There's no room for arrogance within the people of God. None. There's no room for pride within the people of God. This is why God actually hates pride, because everything we have is a gift from him, from the faith to believe, from the roof over your heads, from the food on your table, to the ability to make money, everything, your children, all of it is a gift from God. As it says later on, right here, the source of faith, unless it is given from heaven. John could say this because he understood, though, he could say all these things because he understood his identity. As he says later on, you yourself bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ. This is a, (laughs) there's a lot of irony here. So here's John the Baptist's uh, disciples coming him. They're complaining about how Jesus is baptizing more people. And John responds with, Uh, Weren't you listening all the other times I said, I am not the Christ? In fact, they said that. They they acknowledge it. It says right there in the beginning, you heard me say this already. And And when we were earlier in John, we saw that. He said that twice. Look, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. I am not the Christ. See, John knew because he understood his identity, he also understood his role was to point to Jesus as he continues on, but I have been sent before him. John knew who he is and who he is not. John knows his purpose. John knows that everything he has has been given to him, has been a gift, and whatever he has has, been, has come from God. See, if you are in Christ, you have a job too. You have a role, and that role is to reflect the glory of God, just like John the Baptist was doing. It's to point to the Savior. It could be while you're tobogganing on the hill. It could be while you're at the parks with your kid. It could be while you're at work with your, with your co-workers, hanging out at the water cooler or wherever you hang out. 
It could be out while you're shoveling the snow with your neighbor. It could be on a Zoom call with your coworker. John understood his role. He understood that he wasn't the bridegroom. He understood that his job was just to reflect the glory of Christ, who was the Savior. He knew who Jesus was. He understood, as it says, the one who has the bride is the bridegroom. And the bride in here is the church of God. The bride is the church. We see this in Ephesians 5. For us as husbands, we're called to treat our wives and to care for our wives as what Christ loves the church. Jesus is the bride. John is not, sorry, Jesus is the bridegroom. John is not. And John knew his relationship to Jesus, and so you need to as well. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him, as he says, think about a wedding. So uh, the man comes and he asks the woman, uh, will you marry me? Hopefully she says yes, because it's a lot less embarrassing. And one of the, probably the next conversation, if it hasn't already happened, because let's be honest, guys are already talking about it with their guy friends. You know, generally the guy friends know that the, that the guy is going to ask a woman to marry him before the woman does. At least in my case, my friends did. I think my wife is learning that for the first time. But we come, one of the next conversations is, is to a friend, hey, will you be my what? My best man. Will you be my best man? Uh, now, let's say you're up there and you're, you're, you're standing there, the, the, bride, the, the, the groom is standing here, he's got his best man standing there, the best man's job is to what? To support, to encourage, to spur on, right? Now imagine if that man was jealous. Like, you picked the wrong guy. See, John the Baptist understood his role. He understood his job. His job was to point people to Jesus and to the bride. Now, if your your groom, or sorry, your your best man comes and he's like trying to show off and take all the attention off of what's going on over here, you definitely got the wrong guy. John understood who he was and what he is doing. John the Baptist would have to look all the way back to Hosea 2, verses 14 to 23. He would have known that the new covenant, the new promise, was like a new marriage between God and his people. The Baptist knew Jesus is the bridegroom who will initiate God's new covenant with his people. How do you combat pride? You really need to understand who you are and who Jesus is. Jesus is the perfect bridegroom. He who came from heaven to to make the most unlikely, unworthy bride his bride. I love the book of Hosea. If you have a chance, I encourage you to read it. It's short, and you get the point really quick. In Christ, that's who you are. Jesus is Hosea, and he keeps going after this woman who does not deserve to be married. Yet he keeps redeeming her. See, Jesus is the perfect bride. 
and he has and he 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 takes the most unlikely unworthy bride the church his wife jesus did this by taking upon himself the wrath we deserved in order to give us the favor we could never earn with all of this arguing the baptist john the baptist knew that the purification that they were arguing about right at the beginning of this passage about was only something that could come from Jesus. He is the only one that could create a new relationship between God and his people, a new covenant that is like a marriage with Jesus as the bridegroom. So what is the proper response that John should have here when he begins to understand who Jesus is, who he is? What is his response? It is the proper response. In verse 29, at the end, it says, he rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, the joy of mine is now complete. See, John is so fixated on who Jesus is, on the Christ-centeredness, so much that he can say at the end in verse 30, and every kid who grew up in Awana understands this verse. He must increase, but I must decrease. It's funny how we spend so much time telling our kids to memorize this, but we don't actually take the time to explain why or even the how. Because that's what John spends so much time talking about here. How and why can I be humble before the God? Why must he increase? Why must I decrease? That is completely opposite of everything that has been in my life, especially if you've been a child. How much of your parent, how much of your childhood was your parent uh, kind of putting all of their attention on you? You know, teachers in school. But here, John says, he must increase, but I must decrease. That is a fight between two worlds. But why can he say that? How can he say that? Verse 31, because Jesus is the one who comes from above. In 31b, Jesus, we see Jesus' preeminence because he is above all. Who, he who comes from heaven is above all. Jesus has infinite superiority himself or any other person ever in any sort of office whatsoever that may be filled. Jesus is above. He is from above. He is not merely a man, but he is God. He came from heaven when he took on nature, on a human nature on himself and was born. As God, he is far above all his ministers and servants, as the creator is above all of creation. He is above all principalities and powers and every name that can be named. He is the head over all things to the church and richly deserves all the honor and dignity and respect and reverence that man can give. How in the world can John the Baptist say he must increase, I must decrease? Because he understands who Jesus is. He's been exposed to the greatness of Jesus. You know what the reasons, you know what a reason, you know how we can be humble before God? It's by experiencing the greatness of him. You know, when we struggle with this, we either have or have forgotten the majesty of who God is. 
the majesty of our Savior, the majesty of who he is. John starts off, the book of John starts off at the very beginning in John 1, 1, explaining who Jesus is. John the Baptist can come and say, he must increase and I must decrease because he understands who Jesus is. Every time I struggle with pride and as it wells up within me, as somebody else gets the adulation that I feel like I deserve, it's because I'm forgetting about who I am in Christ, which is rooted in understanding who Jesus is. We begin to overestimate our own importance and not for John the Baptist. He has experienced the greatness and the majesty and the authority and the incomparable layer uh, in the person of Jesus Christ. He knows that Jesus is the bridegroom who has come from heaven. John the Baptist understood that he wasn't who he wasn't and this is what he talked about. And he gives us testimony of who Jesus is. And what he has done for us. You know what another source of pride is? When we think when we think we will succeed when other people fail. You think about that? It comes it, it could have happened to John, right? But what happens? Because in 32, we see, in the end of 32, we see that people have not received Jesus' testimony. It's an improper response to Jesus' testimony. And, and, and what keeps John from this pride? Not, no one has a better perception of the reality than Jesus. No one has more right to be heard than Jesus. No one could communicate more clearly than Jesus, but his testimony wasn't received. John the Baptist understood this about who he is. The thing that boggles my mind often is how Christians believe that they deserve to have better treatment than their Savior did. The Bible actually clearly states that you won't. Folks, I can't, brothers and sisters, I can't reiterate this even more. We are entering into a time in our country where you will have to make very hard decisions. Decisions that you will that you've never had to make before. And if I continue to struggle, if I'm continuing to struggle with what I believe I deserve, those will be very hard to give up. I think of, you know, a couple weeks ago, um, as deacons and and as as pastors, we, we made a statement about the Bill C-6. And I remember the distinct feeling as, I'm, as I wrote it and as I have my mouth hovering over the publish button. Going, this goes against everything this world holds dear. We're going to pay for this. How could John say, he must increase, I must decrease? He could only say that because he sees the preeminence of Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior. He also has an eternal hope that goes beyond the temporary that we have here on this planet. I was talking to my neighbor the other day who uh, her father passed away last week. Not, Not because of COVID, just because of old age. And she says to me, well, what's the guarantee in life? 
She says, death and taxes. She has no hope. You know, it gives us the opportunity to share the hope of Jesus Christ in that situation. But folks, we have to understand who Jesus is as we move forward. John understood that. You may ask, also in verse 33, you may ask what the essence of faith is and what it is. And, and John says here, he says, whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. Believe in Jesus. Don't be the one who doesn't respond to Jesus. Don't be the one, don't be the one who, who doesn't respond to him. Don't be the one who is not resting in him. Don't be the one who denies some of what he says, but only keeps the parts that you like about him. You receive Jesus' full testimony. Look, you may be listening today and you think, you aren't enough. You can't do this. You are full of doubts, dirt, mess. And my response to you is found here in this text. The faith that gives you the ability to believe is not something you can believe hard enough to receive. It is given to you. The testimony of John the Baptist is that you aren't enough. This is grace. God gives you the ability to believe. The Bible makes it clear you don't have the ability Jesus does. If you, are in, if you are in Christ, he has given you the faith that you need to believe. Are you resting in him? If you are, how can you not be anything but humble and bask in the wonder of who God is? For those who are listening who haven't received the gift of grace that comes through Jesus Christ, the gift that makes all things new, makes you right before a holy God, can heal your brokenness, give you purpose, look to Jesus. He is worthy of all of you. If you are to gain your life, you have to lose it. Rest in his finished work. You are right. You are broken. You are messy. You are a sinner. But not too dirty or broken or have sinned too much for our Savior. He can make the dirtiest clean. He can make the most broken whole. He can make the most hurt healed. He can make the rebellious a friend. He can make what was dead alive. This is who Jesus is. Pride comes from thinking of ourselves more highly than we ought. When John the Baptist understands that he is not the King of kings and Lord of lords, he can say, he must increase and I must decrease. And as John continues on, he gives a bit of an explanation. Why is Jesus all these things? In short, he is full of the Spirit. And why can Jesus receive the Spirit? Jesus is full of, of, he is fully God, infinite in being. Jesus is able to receive the fullness of the Spirit because of his matchless capacity and utter holiness. No sin to grieve the Spirit. You and I, we've sinned. We grieve the Spirit all the time. Not Jesus. No limited being to live, to leave some remainder of the Spirit unaccommodated. He is God. But don't miss this. There's a lot at stake here. How do you respond to who Jesus is? And it's important to see that those rescued from wrath 
as it says later on here, for he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the spirit without measure. The father loves the son and has given all things to his, into his hands. 36, whoever believes in the son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. It's important to see that those rescued from wrath are granted eternal life because they believe the testimony of Jesus. While those who were condemned experience wrath because they disobey and not trust the testimony of Jesus. See, the basis of God's judgment is his just sentence for sin. The basis of our salvation is God's grace towards those who put their faith in his son's provision for them. Disobedience alone results in wrath. Faith alone results in salvation. Someone might come to me and tell me, uh, being obedient is being legalistic. No, being obedient is a sign of your faith. You can't say you're a child of God, yet consistently and constantly you're in disobedience to who your Savior is. Because of God's love for the world and for his son, the world's rightful king who receives the Spirit's measure and spoke good words, because John the Baptist gave a credible testimony to Jesus, we owe him our trust and our allegiance, our obedience, and our lives. How can we not look at Jesus, read his testimonies, and the proclamation that, that John does here, and not say along with John, he must increase, I must decrease? So what, you may ask yourself? Have you experienced the greatness of Jesus? Do you want to grow in humility? You need to experience the greatness of Jesus. You need to understand and fight all of those things. And you may ask yourself, what does humility look like then? Our world has divine, defined humility as almost like a, a, a conforming to what the world says. But John Piper comes along, he gives this great little definition of what humility is. First, he says, humility begins with a sense of subordination to God in Christ. The second thing he says is, humility asserts truth not to bolster ego with control or with triumphs and debates, but as service to Christ and love to the adversary. Uh, I'm struggling with number two as I see friends of mine bickering and tearing each other apart because they had different views of how to handle the COVID response. But humility knows it is dependent above all things. Humility knows that it is dependent upon grace for all knowing and believing. Humility knows that I am fallible, that you, that you are fallible. And so considers criticism and learns from it. But humility also knows that God has made provision for human conviction and that he calls us to persuade others. Have you received the testimony of Jesus? Have you rested in who God is and what he has done for us? Have you reflected upon his preeminence and what he has done for you? How do you grow in humility? We experience the greatness of Jesus. 
How do you identify with this passage? Who do you identify with this passage? Are you the Jew arguing with the disciples of John the Baptist, not believing that the Baptist says about who Jesus is? Are you in the place of John the Baptist's disciples who, who need more clarity to understand who Jesus is? Or are you in the place of John the Baptist who understands who Jesus is and understands his role? How do you grow in humility? We experience the greatness of Jesus. Have you experienced the greatness of Jesus? Then you can say, he must increase and I must decrease. I pray that for myself. I pray that for you. I pray that for all of us as a church. That we, would under, that we would live in the humility that is only found in the greatness of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Let me pray. Father God, I just thank you so much for who you are and what you have done for us through your Son. God, I pray that when we feel that feeling of pride beginning to rise up within us, that you would remind us through your word of the grace that we have experienced through your Son, Jesus Christ. None of what we have Everything that we have is a gift from you. The faith that enables us to believe. Lord, I pray that we would also reflect upon your preeminence, uh, that Christ's preeminence, that he is the creator of the universe, that he is worthy of all things, so that, Lord, in all of this, that we may say with John the Baptist, may you, Lord, increase in our lives. May we decrease. Father, I pray that as a church that we would go off into this city and declare the goodness the good news of jesus christ may we live truly humble lives as you define it and amen